Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and today on the Roundup, we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last seven days. Uh, before we begin, I also want to give my uh, sincere thanks and gratitude to all of you who have reached out over the last uh, two weeks since uh, the December 6th shooting at the U on the UNLV campus. Uh, our campus is still reeling. Uh, it's the darkest day in our campus's history, but we're resilient. Uh, we are Rebel Nation, and we are ready to rebuild uh, stronger and come back together after we grieve as a community and become a more unified uh, campus community as a result of the tragedy that unfolded on December 6th. So thank you again for everybody who's reached out in the past few days. Uh, really appreciate uh, your your messages. Um, they really helped sustain me uh, as a remote employee, not being on the college campus, not being able to interact with my colleagues directly and help them grieve. Uh, your messages have really been a, a real important piece of my my being able to deal with this uh, tragedy. So thank you so much for everything that you've done. So let's get right into it with this week's edition of the Midweek Roundup. As we do each week, for those that are new to the Roundup, we take a look at the major themes that have developed in the past week uh, with relate, as they relate to different news stories uh, impacting social media, international education, both in the United States and globally, that might help us better understand the landscape in which we operate as international educators. Uh, we do this each week first by publishing a newsletter on Monday. Uh, it's called All the SMIE News Fit to Share, and that can be found, an archive of all the past editions can be found on our smieconsulting.org website slash subscribe, and you'll be able to subscribe to that. I'll drop the links to all of those in the chat, uh, as well as uh, the, an email that allows you to get the email version of that newsletter delivered to your inbox every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. Uh, we also have a LinkedIn version of that newsletter that for those of you who prefer to get your international ed news that way on that professional social network uh, that we all uh, know and love. Uh, that uh, between the two, email and LinkedIn, we have over 1,600 subscribers now to, uh, to the uh, newsletter, all the SMIE news fit to share. And in case you were wondering, that SMIE is uh, part of the company name. It's Social Media and International Education Consulting. So uh, we are um, proud to present those newsletters free of charge to those of you who wish to uh, kind of get an encapsulated version of my hot takes on all the major themes that we see develop each week in social media news, international education news, both at home and abroad. So feel free to do that uh, by, on our website. Subscribe on LinkedIn as well. Just search for all the SMIE news fit to share. You'll be able to find that uh, newsletter and subscribe that way. But let's get right into our first question of the day. And it is a, a one that we've been discussing and it relates to China. Uh, that is, has up until this past fall been the number one source of international students in the United States and several other countries in recent years uh, since probably mid-naughties. Mid uh, but uh, we've seen that tr uh, trend reversed uh, and Chinese student numbers have been declining since probably 2016-17. Uh, and certainly during the pandemic took a bigger hit. Uh, many institutions that had relied on that gravy train of Chinese undergraduates to sustain them financially and otherwise internationally have, uh, have seen big drop-offs. A lot of them for over four or, five, four or five years have been looking for ways to try and uh, 
minimize the decline that they saw uh, with limited success. Certainly the pandemic didn't help anyone in that regard. But uh, the question of is China being overly politicized by the United States? And you can certainly see within the country there are some concerns that are, are well, very well founded in terms of uh, China's um, reach into its own society, into uh, companies, its own companies that operate outside of China and the uh, uh, rules that they must follow as Chinese companies in terms of data access for the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, we've talked about all those over the years and we've seen this with TikTok and we saw during the Trump administration there were there was introduction of the China initiative that limited and uh, examined and tried to ferret out what they thought were uh, a huge spy network of Chinese scientists and students that had come to the United States to spy on the United States to take back uh, intellectual property and uh, that type of thing back to China and uh, have, uh, have, have, have enhanced China's uh, reputation in terms of the, the scientific knowledge that they, they have uh, broken through with in the past few years that was potentially on the backs of uh, stolen knowledge. But we're not going to cover that piece today. We're talking about the politicization of China as it impacts the, 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 the versions of that that are from certain parts of uh, the political landscape in the United States, and certainly we don't need to, uh, uh, to go over who those are. But certainly uh, the far-right elements of the Republican Party uh, have um, identified China as a, as a number one threat. There are those in the Democratic Party that also see China as the, our, our largest threat globally. But uh, those in the, inter in the ed international education space, we always know and, and adv advocate for, for engagement rather than disengagement when it comes to uh, potential enemies abroad. Uh, we, we help educate uh, uh, scholars from, and students from Iran, from Venezuela, from China, from Russia in the past, uh, that, that where there have been huge numbers, governments that we don't, dis don't agree with on a lot of things, that we have uh, spent time educating their students and then, then returning home and becoming successes in their own country. That's always been the goal of the State Department, public diplomacy-wise, mutual improve mutual understanding. But uh, politics gets in the way of a lot of things these days, and it's a sad state of affairs for our country. Uh, we see that happening uh, with, um, with 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 uh, have ha seen that happening for the last six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, with world events that uh, where po political parties decide to massage those events into their own worldview and then have it uh, negatively impact what we do policy-wise in the United States. So we've seen that over the, over the years, and uh, China has certainly been a target from the previous administration. Not so much a target now. We had the whole spy balloon fiasco last year, and that is has has had some legs, or earlier this year even, and that has had some legs uh, in terms of its impact on uh, politics and in terms of um, uh, how we view, uh, the general public views China. And when the news is always negative about a country, the general perception is among most Americans is it also turns tends to turn negative. So that's part of the news cycle. That's part of what how Americans get get their information. Social media certainly doesn't help and just paints that picture of, of, of the us versus them kind of scenario that has been around for uh, since time immemorial. Um, but in terms of uh, is it being over overly politicized, we see certain examples of that. Uh, in certain states uh, in the United States, we've seen that with the whole TikTok issue. Certain states, uh, particularly heavy red states, ban TikTok for government officials uh, and even institutions uh, in their states. Uh, we've seen uh, 
now in Florida, there has, has been legislation that was passed that uh, has identified countries of concern. Uh, there's a list of seven of those countries that uh, there's, and this, this law that uh, is being seen by most academics in public institutions in Florida as a real, having a real chilling effect on potentially being able to attract students that, uh, the, um, that, that might be coming from these countries of concern, and China is chief amongst those. Uh, the list of countries uh, you'll, you'll, will sound fairly, fairly familiar, China. Uh, Russia has been included in the last couple of years, uh, Iran, North Korea, Cuba, Venezuela, Syria, uh, what many of us would consider outside of China and Russia. Russia probably is falling into this category now, rogue states, uh, or uh, ver at the very least uh, unfriendly states to the United States. Uh, that uh, the, the actual measure that passed, uh, China is obviously in the not Iran, then Russia probably, and Venezuela are the three in that list. Uh, four in that list that are probably the most, uh, have the most volume in terms of students, scholars in the United States. But the measure that passed in the spring has gone into effect now, restricts public universities and colleges from, quote unquote, accepting grants from or participating in partnerships or agreements. Now, uh, we've certainly had, uh, had, had experienced this at UNLV. We're not in a state that has this kind of law, but uh, we had um, had a had a, uh, an institution in Florida approach us uh, last uh, earlier this year uh, that was interested in us taking over their program. I'm not going to name the name of the program, but uh, with uh, that they had with a partner institution in China they had been operating for 20 years that they were uh, potentially looking at uh, need, wanting not wanting to lose momentum with that program at least to have have that relationship continue with another with us um, related to uh, to one of our programs. So uh, that there is a very real consequence of this law that passed in the spring that now institutions that have existing partnerships are having to rethink what those look like. Uh, you also have uh, the questions being raised on campuses now. Well, what does this mean about hiring graduate assistants? If we're, is that a partnership? Is that an agreement? It's a, an agreement between the Chinese national and, and a university, but uh, the faculty at the public institutions in Florida are raising some red flags here. It's like this is significantly going to impact our ability to enroll uh, Chinese students, which make up a, a significant portion of their graduate uh, student populations at these large public institutions. Uh, what is the actual damage going to be? Uh, it's a little bit hard to say right now, but uh, uh, of those seven, uh, seven countries that are on that list, the largest source of international students in, in Florida's public institutions uh, are science, technology, engineering, math are, are from China. So it's, uh, it's really going to uh, causing some political waves, obviously, uh, and impacts on educational and public institutions in the state of Florida. So it's, uh, we're not, I mean, there's no definitive answers, uh, but the image um, kind of goes back to what happened during the Trump administration uh, with the day after he was inaugurated, he launched the Muslim, what became known as the Muslim travel bans to seven countries and included a couple of these also uh, on that list, uh, North Korea, Iran, that type of thing. But uh, we, uh, we are, that caused a knock-on effect that because it was seen as a Muslim bandy, and even though it was targeting mostly rogue uh, Muslim states that uh, yeah, I'm in Syria, that type of thing, uh, it had an impact far beyond those states that were targets of the travel ban to 
include all uh, to include many of many Muslim majority countries that saw that as a threat and a, 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 a unwelcome sign for them to come to the United States. So many still did, but it dissuaded a number of students from coming because the government was saying, uh, because you're from these certain Muslim countries, you're not welcome here. Uh, the reality is the the law did have carve outs for students uh, to be legitimate uh, uh, visa uh, visa recipients to be able to come to the United States, but the damage was done with the tone that was set by the politics of the conversation and how it was presented and how it was interpreted by news media across the world. So the same issue now is facing in a microcosm uh, of the United States within Florida. Uh, where the, the law that was recently passed is now worrying students who might be have thought about coming to Florida to one of these public institutions to think that they are going to be discriminated against if they do come to the state. So there's some real real issues, longer term issues that this uh, this Florida law will have potentially on recruitment of uh, international students from or students from China. Uh, so that's one side of the coin. Uh, the, the positive side of the China debate right now is that uh, th they had certainly a, a troubled, uh, and they're experiencing it right now, a post-pandemic economy downturn uh, or decrease in, in growth or that type, whatever, however, however, however you want to pose it. Uh, China has had a rough, rough re-entry into the world. Uh, they only just reopened to the world in January. Flights have still not resumed to full capacity uh, from the West to China. Uh, so there, there's, there was agreements when uh, Biden and Xi met in, uh, in California last month that uh, there would be increases in the number of flights by this summer. And we hope we're on university campuses. We're certainly holding our breath, making sure that that happens uh, because that will allow more students to come in the fall. Uh, what we are uh, also seeing from our from folks on the ground who have been in China for years, who have got their fingers on the pulse of what's going on, uh, there certainly seem to be some trends in China that are uh, portending an increase again in enrollments uh, that for those that might be looking abroad in the next year or two or more. And that has to do our friends at uh, Sunrise International. David Weeks uh, has. Uh, uh, and his colleague Gavin uh, Newsom-Tanner have uh, done a number of presentations recently, just did a webinar on six key trends in China that will shape student recruitment. And in that webinar, they highlighted uh, the increases in international school enrollments in China, and that could help feed the future study abroad markets. Uh, there are uh, families in China that are, there's a feeling of social malaise, according to the article, uh, and that uh, means that there's low economic confidence and reduced consumer spending, and that's uh, families, again, saving to send their kids abroad. Uh, will they all come to the United States? No, of course not. Uh, China is a much more uh, diverse landscape nowadays in terms of where they choose to go. They have many more options than they did 10, 15 years ago uh, in terms of active universe, active countries recruiting in that market to try and get their share of the pie. Because we know it's China and India. India and China are the two that will drive every, uh, every institution's growth plans in international student enrollment in the coming years. Uh, there is no other one that's on the radar that's anywhere close uh, to them, those two. Uh, you look at Brazil, potentially, you look at
uh, Indonesia is a, a sleeping giant. There's others out there, but for the majority of institutions around the world that are looking to bring in international students, India and China are the key drivers of everything uh, for half, if not more, of international enrollments on most ca campuses in the Western world. So, uh, but the signs are somewhat positive in terms of what's coming down the pike in China and whether or not there will be some uh, real opportunities to regain your, your, your stronghold in China and uh, to increase your enrollments again from that country. Some are being more successful than others. Some who never had a ground game in China are, are madly trying to find the ways to get, uh, get their folks on the ground, either agent partners or university partners, or a combination of both, direct recruitment activities. All of these can be important con uh, elements or a strong digital strategy as well. So three or four different elements to a strong China strategy. Uh, I know that's a topic for a lot of uh, a lot of conference sessions, I'm sure, down the road. But uh, re-engaging with China, I had a colleague uh, just comment on a po on this post about this topic uh, just uh, yesterday, and uh, asked, "Well, how do you re-engage in China?" And really, uh, what it comes down to, in most cases, uh, like with many other uh, regions in the world, it's the relationships you have in that country, the relationships with your agent partners, with your university partners, uh, with uh, providers that are doing tours or visits and uh, those type of events, fairs, uh, getting to know them and getting to know how and how your institution can best uh, take advantage of opportunities in China. And it does require physical presence, really, if you're going to make that happen in a, to any significant degree. And that's certainly that's something we're doing at UNLV. Uh, we now have one of our faculty members who's the China uh, initiatives specialist um, and coordinator, if you will, and following up on our, our trip that we did there in June to China, where we uh, met with uh, four new partner universities, some really fantastic institutions, uh, we're and developing strategies to help build enrollments out of that uh, is is ongoing and it's multifaceted, multi-layered, but we you know you need to be in in the country to have a chance of getting those students back. So, yes, it's being overly politicized, uh, China is, by the United States, but uh, we break down those barriers when we have a, have a relationship with Chinese faculty, with Chinese agents, with uh, schools, with, uh, with in-person service providers uh, in that country, and help break down those barriers and show the real uh, life of what your institution can offer to Chinese students. So let's move on to topic number two, and that is, what challenges will international education face in 2024? Uh, this is a topic that I love, and it's always the right time of year at the end of December every year. Uh, these uh, these few, uh, reviews of 2023, what's coming in 2024, all of these is the kind of time to happen. Uh, time when these are really starting to build. And certainly, uh, this is our last um, midweek roundup of the calendar year, 2023. Uh, we'll be off next week for some much-needed time with family. But uh, we'll resume uh, in uh, 2024. Uh, likely on the 4th, we might be doing a live uh, as I'm uh, traveling out uh, to, uh, to do, uh, do some work uh, in Seattle and hopefully on campus uh, the, first, or the first, second full week of uh, January. So uh, what, uh, where is this uh, topic coming from? An uh, ISEF Monitor article related to this topic, the five international education trends that will extend into 2024. And I'll run through these first and kind of give the give the ten thousand foot view and kind of dive into a couple of these. First up, one uh, AI moves into the mainstream, and second, students expect faster responses. Three, study abroad becomes less affordable. 
four, a sudden move away from an unrestricted growth mindset. Five, India is now driving global growth in student mobility. And we've talked a bit about that. So let's dive into a couple of these. And I wanna, I wanna talk about uh, the less affordable part, we, uh, the global financial uh, uh, inflation crisis that's impacting everybody. Certainly that's nothing new and yeah, that's gonna continue. Uh, might have some brighter spots, but we'll see. But in terms of uh, the two that I, I would love to focus on here, uh, you, there's some, um, what, if, if those of you who followed me for a while, you know about our six Ps. I talked about this a couple weeks ago at the ARC conference, had a session about it. Uh, it's going to be a, part, a chapter in an upcoming book uh, that uh, some of the folks at ARC are producing, hopefully sometime in the spring. Uh, what, uh, we talk about the six Ps. The first one is perspective. Uh, the second is planning. The third is the platforms. The fourth are the partners you choose. Uh, the fifth are the is the personalization strategy you use in terms of uh, your marketing to students and, and key audiences. And the sixth is the are the, having a healthy dose of peers uh, in current using current students to help recruit future students. So uh, th those are the six Ps. This ISEF Monitor article really helps encapsulate a lot of what we talk about in the six Ps as the kind of foundational principles that you need to have your eye on as you're building strategies to, and, and tactics to, uh, to accommodate for a very, a very much a changing dynamic landscape that we have out here. Uh, first up is uh, is knowing your audience, right, uh, and who your audience is, international students. Uh, what do they expect? Uh, they expect uh, fast response times. They expect personalized uh, res responses. Uh, they respect, uh, expect uh, to ha hear from you within 24 hours. Uh, that's 62%, a uh, recent Keystone survey in, uh, earlier this year said 62% of students expect a response from a university within 24 hours or less. And that's an increase of over 21% over 2022 numbers. So that uh, may, is a driver for that first one that was um, talked about, that a AI will become more mainstream and helping to reduce uh, the uh, delays in responding to initial inquiries. So uh, how AI can help you do that in chats and automated responses, all those things that can help, AI can help infuse how you respond to these messages. So that's the personalization piece that's so, so important uh, that we talk about in the six Ps. Uh, the, um, the one I really wanna spend a little bit of time on is uh, uh, numbers four and five. Uh, and that is a sudden, four is a sudden move away from an unrestricted growth mindset. Now, I'm not going to say that's the U.S. mode here. I don't think we're in that. Uh, we've, we're moving away from an unrestricted growth mindset uh, because, frankly, most of our institutions, uh, we know that 60% uh, of international students are at uh, less, than six, less than 600 institutions uh, at, in the United States. So there are 4,500 post-secondary institutions in the United States. 60% are, are, are attending 600 or so. So uh, that is, um, we have a high concentration within those 600 or so, but uh, we, uh, we know that our capacity in the United States, uh, in terms of our entire, international, our entire higher ed population, student population in the U.S., international students are less than 6%, 5.5 or so from the most recent Open Doors numbers. That's the only place where we really get that, uh, that kind of a data point. Uh, but in these other countries, Australia, Canada, U.K., we're looking at 
25 to 30 to 40 percent or more on many of their college and university campuses are international students now. Because why is that? Because they don't have the number of institutions that we do. In Canada, there are less than 100 universities, post-secondary universities. There are two to 300 colleges. These are the vocational colleges, both public and private. So you've got less than a tenth of the total post-secondary institutions north of the border, yet they right now are enrolling 800,000 plus, maybe 900,000 plus international students this year. And they are running into capacity issues and also public perception issues and economic issues, particularly with housing in terms of availability of housing for all these extra students when the, uh, there really isn't that built in in a lot of places in Canada where there are now institutions like Cape Breton University that are specifically downsizing their populations. That is a sign we've had the we've talked about Canada last week and the uh, and the week before uh, UK as well uh, Australia Canada UK are all undergoing significant political pushback on unlimited or unrestricted growth of international students for a variety of reasons housing being one of them uh, the impact on health services in the UK a uh, number of different areas net migration in UK and Australia are key issues and where there is public pushback against that. Uh, in general, most, most publics in these major receiving uh, countries are supportive of international students on their, in their communities and co on college campuses, but they've seen such a rise, and the way it gets talked about in the news seems to make it seem like it's a bigger problem than it actually is. But in reality, it is a big problem when it comes to housing and other things. So you see each of these three countries now, Canada introducing their designated uh, institution framework by requiring LOAs be verified before students can go for their study permits, that they've doubled the amount of, in of funding that students have to provide uh, proof of from 10000 to 20000 uh, Canadian dollars. Uh, you see in Australia, which we're going to talk about in the third, third question, they have a new migration strategy that has a number of different elements that are going after some of the uh, more suspect um, colleges that are vocational colleges that are seen as uh, um, kind of quick entry points into uh, the Australian economy. You see similar things happening in Canada where the specific rules of this designated institution framework and uh, potential limits on uh, provinces if they don't get their acts together in terms of quality control for those institutions because uh, there is no national accreditation of the institutions in Canada. It's all done at the provincial level. You know, the, care, the, the stick that they have is, hey, if you want your students to get study permits, you got to follow our, follow our rules and make sure that you're providing the right level of service and, and all, the, all the things that the government has identified on their list. Uh, UK has uh, uh, introduced the tra uh, dependent travel ban for non-doctoral level students, can't bring family members with, uh, to address the issues of uh, net migration. That the, da the data, as we talked about last week, already is showing that there's going to be a huge knock-on effect in the UK for international students come January. Uh, deposits are way down, en enrollments are way down, applications are way down. So in key markets as well, India, Nigeria, that are affected most directly by this dependent travel ban. Uh, you see in Australia, there, there's talk about caps on uh, international student numbers. No one's saying that yet definitively, but there, there's talk there. There's talk about that in Canada. There's talk about having the net migration numbers in Australia in the next year. So there's some real issues here. And this is the perspective piece that I, I think is important for us in the U.S. to have about what our competitors are doing right now. 
we we are in an opportun uh, really an opportune moment in our international education life. We are moving towards an international education strategy. We're a couple, three, four decades probably away from getting it. I'm being a little bit pessimistic, but now with the U.S. for Success Coalition that has rallied a lot of the association worlds specifically around the international education piece for immigration reform for uh, departments to make the kind of structural changes they can uh, to allow for a, a more streamlined process for international students. But the real challenge is the regulatory piece uh, that requires acts of Congress to change things. Uh, that's a much more uh, larger picture. You've heard me talk about the political capital that's going to be needed to be expended from the White House down amongst leaders of Congress to get that done and have a standalone bill rather than put it in with an omnibus bill at the beginning of a cycle that'll never get passed. So there's a focus that's happening in the United States that is not happening around the world. Um, whether the government in the U.S. is going to be as receptive as we'd like them to be to what we want for international education uh, to move forward in significant numbers in an organized, cohesive way, I don't think we're going to be there yet. The next, the election next year will have a lot to say about what the how, what direction we go. Uh, but there's hope, at least that amongst the amongst those that know in the international ed industry, that the government at least is more more willing to listen. So we'll see what happens with that. But because our com major competitors, Australia, Canada, UK, are in kind of a contraction, not contraction, but at least not on some restricted growth mode, we're now in a position where we can potentially affect some real change if we coordinate our efforts, if we take advantage of how we market ourselves to prospective students in the key markets, India, China, some of the African nations that are coming up, Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, that are starting to build up momentum in terms of their growth, in Indonesia, Vietnam, Korea, Japan even. Uh, you, there are still huge markets for the U.S. Canada is a huge market for the U.S. It's number four in our, in our, on our total, uh, both in the Open Doors numbers and the Seavis by the Numbers uh, report. So opportunity exists for us if we have knowledge and awareness of what's going on in the wider world, that perspective piece. So these, what we've talked about here so far, have covered a lot of the P, three of the P's that we're talking about, perspective, partners, personalization. And that's something that we really think is important for you uh, to identify in your, on your own campuses is how you can best be taking advantage of what's out there and what, what the changes are coming in the world and adapting your strategies to meet the, the growing needs of, of students, the different, different needs of our student, prospective student populations. Now, our final topic of the day, and just a, a few, couple of quick minutes on this one, on how will Australia's new migration strategy impact enrollments down under? Uh, this is a topic that is gaining a lot of traction because it's, we've covered Canada already a couple of weeks ago. We covered the UK uh, last week. Uh, with all the changes that are happening uh, in these major destination markets for international students, uh, we're seeing now uh, in Australia, they have now, a, uh, as part of their new migration strategy, uh, they have uh, identified uh, the need for a genuine student test. Uh, that they're looking at revamping the graduate visa that students get as part of the part of their uh, the post-study work opportunity when they're finished. Uh, the migration strategy document is not approved yet, but it certainly uh, it does have a, a very positive a statement of intent uh, that the international education is a new engine of economic growth for Australia and an important part of our social fabric. Uh, that's a, it's not a new engine. It's been a driver of their growth for, for a couple decades at least. But uh, they do caveat it with, however, growth in the sector needs to be promoted through integrity and quality 
and students and graduates need to be better supported to realize their economic potential in the labor market. Now, I will, see, will say I see a lot of similarities with, with what I'm seeing in Australia with their, this, kind of, uh, this kind of language about making sure the services are better, focusing on quality delivery of service uh, from institutions and the institutions themselves. I see a lot of similarities with what's happening in Australia and what's happening in Canada because uh, that's also one of the driving forces we talked about and some of the news stories this week mentioned as well that Canada is also looking at, well, uh, we've got these, these uh, puppy mills as, uh, or uh, diploma mills as, as, uh, as, the, as Mark Miller, the uh, Minister for Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship in Canada pointed out that uh, he wants to get rid of those puppy mi diploma mills that are just shortcuts for students to enter the country to get into work opportunities, uh, not actually uh, spend any time or money at the institutions. So we're just spending money at the institutions that aren't really providing the services. Then it has that knock-on effect we talk about. So similar issues in Australia. The housing issue is huge there as a huge shortage. Uh, there are capacity issues in terms of what's going on in uh, the housing stock that's available. We talked about in the past how during the pandemic, a lot of institutions sold off properties that were campus housing, off-campus housing for international students that are now gone because they sold them so they didn't have to lay off staff. So it was kind of a... Uh, uh, a Solomon's choice there in terms of uh, what to do. But you see Australia grasping at some of the same issues there, uh, that the post-study work rights are, are under threat, the savings threshold in terms of what students are going to have to document for Australia to get a student visa are, are being raised. Uh, English language requirements are, for visa applicants are also being raised. So there's some real uh, limiting factors that will make Australia less popular for international students in terms of the kinds of students that had been attracted, particularly at the vocational level, may not be able to come anymore. And that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing overall economically. So it may mean a dip in numbers. But you also have the those that are much more um, uh, positive on this, saying that Australia is hurtling towards a million international students and recent graduates. So it's a, the, the, it's just a very, very much a positive spin on what's happening down under. But I certainly think there's a lot more that uh, uh, is going to happen in Australia and other countries like this, UK, Canada, that are dependent on election results in the UK next year. Uh, it's going to be dependent on uh, how strict the governments are in Australia and Canada in terms of impacting those vocational institutions. So a lot can change, obviously. International's only constant is change. And that's something I, I certainly talk about very often and being aware of that. That's all we have for you this week on the Midweek Roundup. Again, we're going to be uh, uh, taking a break next week for the holidays uh, as we travel to meet with family. But we'll resume in early 2024 and look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thanks, everybody, for making us a part of your uh, weekly international edification. And we wish you the very best moving forward. Cheers.